Good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. So good to have you all here today. My name is Phil Ortigo. If you're a guest, I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, I had the opportunity of being off last week. My wife and I had the opportunity and the privilege of going to Hilton Head thanks to this wonderful body that sent us on a, a trip for my 25-year anniversary here. And we enjoyed that time. And while I was gone, Tucker Kelly... Um, one of our young men on staff here had the opportunity to preach last week, and he was preaching in view of a call. Let me just help you to understand that. Um, we are making a recommendation from our elders that we would take Tucker, Tucker Kelly and move him to the position of an assistant pastor to students, taking Josh Hansen, who's the assistant pastor to students, and move him to the associate pastor of family. So we're making those two transitions. They still work together. They work well together. And Tucker was preaching last week in view of a call, which meant you had the opportunity to assess his gifts and his talents. And all covenant members next Sunday... At the end of each service, you will have the opportunity to go to the Family Life Center, which is directly behind me, right through the parking lot, and you will have the opportunity to vote, to extend a call to Tucker Kelly as the assistant pastor to students, and to vote to move and transition Josh Hansen as the associate pastor of families. So those two things are together. They're separate, but they're kind of a package deal. If you vote for one and not the other, we have no idea what we're going to do. So, uh, but, but we ask you to continue to do that and um, have the opportunity next week to do that. Then on the 18th, we are having a celebration that evening for all volunteers. We want to honor our volunteers. We cannot do what we do without volunteers, so you need to be here, all volunteers. We have a gift for you. We have an awesome gift drawing that we're going to give to um, some particular volunteers. We're going to have a meal together, so if you serve in any capacity in the life of the church, you need to be here. we got some child care. we got some opportunities for children, so we want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. There. We're in a series called Free, and we're talking about the freedom that we have in Christ. I read a story several years ago about a little boy named Johnny and his sister Sally. And they loved to go to their grandparents' house during the summer and spend a week there. Now, the reason they loved to go to their grandparents' house is because they had an incredible farm. And they had everything that you would imagine on a farm. Horses and goats and cows and pigs and chickens and ducks and all of those things. There was a pond. There were fields that they could play in. Johnny was particularly excited about going to his grandparents, because his grandfather told him, I got a special prize for you when you get here. And when he got there, he was given a slingshot, his very first slingshot. Now, it wasn't one of those little wooden flimsy ones with just a rubber band. It was one of those that had the arm piece on it. It was more of a professional. It had those rubber tubes where you could pull back a long ways. He was so excited about it. He took that slingshot, and he's walking through all of the areas, and he's shooting at signs. He's shooting at trees. He's shooting at everything that he could find. Well, he came to the edge of the pond, and he looked across this pond. It wasn't a real large pond. But he looked across the pond, and there was his grandmother's pet mallard duck. She loved that duck. And he took that uh, slingshot, and he picked up a rock, and he said, let me just see how close I can get to that duck. He pulled that slingshot back, and he let it go. The perfect trajectory, the perfect velocity hit that duck right between the eyes and killed it dead. The little boy panicked. What am I going to do? The duck is flapping. He runs around the pond thinking maybe he could revive it, but it was dead. And there was a pile of wood right there, so he thought, 
I'm going to hide it. I don't know anything else to do. So he opened up that wood. He stuck that duck in there. And when he stood up, his sister Sally was right there face to face looking at him with a smile. And she just nodded. And she walked off. He went on to lunch that afternoon. Lunch was made. He thought, I'm, I'm dead. I'm, I'm in trouble. He's sitting there. He's eating lunch. And after he eats lunch, grandmother says, Sally, it's your turn to help do the dishes. And she said, oh, no, no. Johnny has agreed to do the dishes today. <laughs> Haven't you, Johnny? And she whispered, remember the duck. He said, yes, ma'am. So he did the dishes. That afternoon, Grandpa said, okay, we're all going fishing this afternoon. Get ready. And Grandma said, now, Sally, I need you to help me prepare supper so you can't go fishing. She said, oh, no, no. Johnny is going to help you with supper. Isn't that right, Johnny? Remember the duck. Yes, Grandma. So he helped. And this went on for days. He was miserable. He was doing his chores, and he was doing Sally's chores. And finally, he couldn't stand it anymore. He pulled his grandmother aside, and he was in tears. He said, Grandma, I got a confession. She said, what is it? He said, I didn't mean to, but I killed your duck. He said, I wasn't really trying to hit it. I was just trying to see how close I could get, but I killed your duck, and I'm sorry. And she put her arm around him. She said, Johnny, I know. How do you know? She said, I saw the whole thing from the window. <laughs> and I was wondering how long you would hide your sin and how long you would let Sally make you her slave because you wouldn't confess it. We've been talking about some things that the enemy wants to use to enslave us. We talked about the freedom that we have in Jesus and what he has done to set us free. And then we've been talking about these things that the enemy has in his arsenal, these various weapons, to drive us back to a place of slavery again. We talked about fear being one of those things. We talked about discouragement. Last week, Tucker brought a message about how worry can enslave us. But this morning what I want to talk to you about is guilt and how the enemy wants to use guilt to enslave us. Guilt from the past. But I, you need to understand that when we're talking about guilt, there are at least three kinds of guilt that we need to understand. And if we don't understand this, then we're going to misunderstand guilt. The first kind of guilt is what we call false guilt. It is a guilt that many people have but it's not attached to any specific sin. In fact, statistics tell us that 41% of people every day walk around with some kind of false guilt. They feel guilty for things that they ought not feel guilty for. It's not real guilt. When my mom died, my dad called me shortly after that, and he said, son, I'm really having a struggle. He said, I have this incredible peace after your mom's death, but I feel guilty because I don't think I should be peaceful about it. I said, well, Dad, why are you peaceful? He said, I'm peaceful because I know she's with Jesus. I said, then that's a good thing. It is not wrong for you to have that kind of peace that mom is with Jesus. You don't need to feel guilty about that. Or like the person that might have guilt that says, you know, I, I, I feel guilty because I was in a car accident, but the person driving died and I didn't. And I feel guilty about being alive. That's a false kind of guilt. That's the kind of guilt that the enemy will still want to use and enslave people for even though there's no moral violation there. It's a false kind of guilt. It's kind of the guilt that some people might have when they say, I feel guilty that UNC keeps beating Duke. I mean, no, 
Y'all don't ever feel guilty for that. False guilt. But here's a second kind of guilt. Corrective guilt. This is a good kind of guilt. This is the kind of guilt that God brings into our lives because he has wired us with a conscience. Every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being has a conscience that points to a moral compass that tells us that there's right and there's wrong. And when we do something wrong, it kicks in. It's like it's an electric fence. And when you do something wrong, it jolts you, it shocks you. It's saying, hey, you're not doing something right. And for a child of God, that conscience is, is set apart by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you causes your conscience to show you what's true and what's not true and gives you the power to be able to overcome it. When I was a little kid, and I wasn't a believer, I didn't know anything about Jesus or God, but I went to a convenience store. And I pulled off the perfect candy caper. I stole a sucker from the store. And when I walked out of that store, I was so proud of what I did and how I tricked that guy. And I walked out with that sucker, and I'm walking home, and I'm sucking on that thing. And every step, I felt worse and worse and worse until I threw the thing away. Because my conscience told me that it was wrong. That corrective guilt is a good kind of guilt. Because God has wired us with that. But there's a third kind. And this is the destructive kind. It's what I call destructive guilt. It's the kind of guilt that lingers deep within us. It's there because of unconfessed sin. It's there because of unresolved situations in our lives. It's there because we don't come clean with it. We try to bury it in our past, but we can never get away from it. It's the kind of guilt that the enemy, the devil, loves to use in the life of a believer. Because he keeps bringing it back, he accuses that believer. And because of that unconfessed sin, people carry unnecessary guilt. And the Father knows this too. That's why he's provided a way for us to walk away from this guilt. It's called grace. And if we don't understand this, the enemy will use these things to enslave us. It's the young woman who had an abortion, but has never dealt with that sin, and who has pushed it away, and she's reminded of it every time she sees a child, and she doesn't know what to do with it, and it's heavy on her. It's the man who has had an adulterous affair, but has never come clean about it. It was years ago in his past, but rather than acknowledging it, he just pushes it away, and it has negatively impacted his family today. It's the college student who cheated on an exam that was the very exam that allowed them to graduate. It's the employee who has stolen from their employer and has never come clean. You see, the list can go on and on. And these are the kinds of things that the enemy wants to use to enslave us. We're not alone in this. One of the greatest men of the Bible, a man whom God said himself was a man after his own heart, David, had to deal with this. And as we look at the life of David, we see a beautiful picture in Scripture of how this destructive guilt almost ruined his life. And yet, in the same time, this beautiful scripture shows us how David navigated through it to overcome such destructive guilt. 
The Holy Spirit captures this for us in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. As you're turning there, I want to set the stage for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find the story that led to this destructive guilt. You know the story well. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. David is on the rooftop of his palace. It's the time of year that the kings go out to battle. He should be fighting with his soldiers, but he's home and he's restless. He's walking to and fro on the top of his palace, and he looks across the way, and there's a woman, a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, who's taking a bubble bath on her roof. Now, both of them are not innocent in this, because he saw her, and she knew the patterns of the king. And anyway, he's on the roof. He sees her. He's a handsome man. She's a beautiful woman. Her husband, Uriah, one of David's 30 mighty men, is off fighting with the army. David sees her. He's captured by her. He inquires of her. He sends for her. She comes to his palace. They spend a night together. He sends her home. It was a one-night stand. But she comes back, and she's pregnant. And David's like, what do I do about this? Man, man, I, I can't let anybody know. I know what I'll do. I'll send for Uriah. Uriah's out on the lines. I'll get Uriah to come home, spend the night with his wife. Nobody will ever know. So he pulls Uriah off of the line, brings him to his palace. Uriah must be scratching his head. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't he have other people that can come tell him about the battle? I'm coming to him. So I eat with him. And so what David feeds him, he gives him some wine. He says, go spend the night with your wife. Enjoy your time. Well, he doesn't. He stays with the servants, and he sleeps outside. He was more noble of a man than David was. And so David finds out the next morning it didn't work, so he gets him drunk this time. He sends him off, and it doesn't work again. So he says, I only have one choice. He writes a letter to Joab, the general. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. I want you to pull everyone off and let Uriah be killed. He writes it, he signs it, he seals it, he hands Uriah's death sentence to Uriah himself and says, bring this to Joab. He's such a man of integrity that he doesn't even look at the letter and he has no clue that he's about to die because of his own integrity. He brings it to Joab, Joab reads it and he's probably scratching his head. Hmm, this is very suspicious. What is David covering up? And he sends Uriah into the battle, they pull back, he's killed. Word goes back, David finds out that he's dead. Whew, I'm off the hook. But Uriah, uh, uh, Bathsheba is pregnant. What's he going to do? Oh, I know. I'll marry her. It'll look like the noble thing that the king is taking one of his 30 men's wives and marrying her and is going to raise this child as his own. Surely everybody will love that. One year goes by. David is hiding his sin. And the Holy Spirit gives us a glimpse of what has happened in his soul. He's not off the hook. He is miserable. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. The word blessed means happy. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But look at verse 2 or verse 3. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In these five verses, we see the whole chronology of this destructive guilt. We see a number of things taking place. And we see them in a a sequential steps. And if we look at these and we apply these to our lives, not only do we discover why destructive guilt is so bad, we discover how to put away destructive guilt. So let's break this down and let's look at four specific things that David learned and what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Number one, the consequences of destructive guilt. Destructive guilt is a terrible thing. Do you know that people who are living with this kind of guilt usually end up with some kind of mental illness or their suicide? It is a high rate for people who try to live their lives with this kind of guilt. The enemy knows that. And if he can enslave us with that, not only does he rob us of joy and our relationship with the Father, but even of our worthiness as children of God. And David, he's trying to put this away. And so this, this destructive guilt, the consequences are threefold. What are they? Number one, the suppression of truth. David tried to suppress the truth. He tried to push the truth away. Notice how he says it. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. David didn't deal honestly with it. He swept it under the rug. This was a man who always had uh, counsel with God. He was always in the presence of the Father. He was always going back and seeking God. But because he was hiding his sin, let me tell you, he was not talking to anyone, and he wasn't talking to God about it. He just swept it away. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe the pain will dissipate. But I want to remind you of this. When you have unconfessed sin in your life, you know what it's like? It's like a toothache. Have you ever had a toothache? Have you ever had a toothache? A toothache, is, and it's like when your tooth is just throbbing. It's not so much pain that you can't get any rest, but it's enough pain that you can't rest properly. It's just that throbbing. And every night, David would lay his head on a pillow, and it would be like a toothache in his soul. He knew it was there. And when you and I are living with unconfessed sin, oh, nobody else may know about it. But we do. And it's like a throbbing. No matter how much you push it down, it keeps popping up. Kind of like Donald Trump's tweets. (laughs) They keep coming back. But when you suppress the truth and sweep it under the rug, there is a constant throb in your heart. But there's a second thing. There's a surrender of joy. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There was this lack of joy, a loss of joy. David was the man who wrote songs. He was the man who danced before people. He was the man that was filled with joy and wrote about joy. But during this year, there was no joy. Because the hand of God was heavy upon him. And rather than dealing with his sin, as he suppressed it, He lost all sense of joy. Have you ever seen somebody who's eaten up with guilt? 
You can see it in their eyes. You see it in their life. Their countenance changes. The joy that once led their lives is somehow missing. And then there's a third consequence, the secrecy of our actions. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, Nathan, the prophet, shows up. And he gets in the face of David. And he says this, for you did it secretly. David, you did it secretly. <laughs> but all of Israel is going to find out. You did it secretly, but everyone under the sun will know it. And David tried to push it away. He's probably thinking, nobody knows. Bathsheba knew. Joab knew something was going on. The servants knew something was up. And can you imagine every time the servants got in a little circle, David must have been thinking, oh, oh, here it comes. They're about to find out. And his whole life was living in this secret sin of the past. Somebody told me some time ago that people don't remember sermons. They remember sentences from sermons. Well, I got a sentence for you for this sermon. It's not original with me. It comes from Chuck Swindoll. Many years ago, I read when he wrote a commentary about the life of David, and here's what he wrote. Hidden sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Hidden sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Before God, there are no secrets. And yet David is living in this secret sin that's eating him alive. The consequence. But the second thing we see in this passage is this, the confrontation. There's a confrontation with destructive guilt. Between verses 4 and 5, historically, is when Nathan shows up, the prophet of God. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, Nathan shows up in the palace and he confronts David about his sin. And this is how the writer records it. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, who sent Nathan? The Lord. And God in his grace could have left David to live in this sin, but God in his grace sends confrontation so he can deal with the sin. And listen, when God confronts you and me with our sin, it's not because he is some angry deity that wants to see us grovel at his feet. When God confronts us of our sin, it's his grace. Because he wants us to be free from it. And the enemy says, oh, no, 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 don't you go there. Everybody will know. And God says, if you keep it to yourself, everyone will know and you will be the miserable the rest of your life. But I've got the remedy. And God in his grace sends Nathan. And what does Nathan do? He is so clever. He doesn't just confront David, but he tells him a story that David engages with and cannot deny. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. And he prepared it for the man who had come to eat. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Here comes the crescendo. Nathan said to David, You are the man. David, you are the man. Now, I wasn't there. None of us was there. But I'd love to have heard the inflection in Nathan's voice when he stands before David. Now, here are the things that happen when we are confronted with sin. When we're confronted with sin, what's our first initial response? The same one that David had. There's a self-righteous response. Notice how easy it was for David to point his fingers at other people and to condemn them. But the condemnation that he was putting on them was his. He condemned himself. And I want to tell you there are many times where the Spirit of God and the Word of God will come to us and confront us about our sin. And we can be no different than David. We can become self-righteous about our sin. We can justify our sin. And the Holy Spirit says to us in the midst of that sin, you are the woman. You are the man. And it's at that point that we have a choice to either continue to push back against that conviction or let it be the thing that changes us. There's another thing. There's a shameful reality. Because Nathan said, you did this thing in secret. David, this thing will be known to all of Israel and to everyone under the sun. 2 Samuel 12, 12. And isn't that true? All of Israel learned about David's sin. And ever since that happened... For over 3,000 years, preachers have been preaching against the, about the failure of David. How would you like preachers for the next 2,500 years to be preaching sermons about the failures of your life? How would you like to have books with outlines with your name and your failure? How would you like to have small groups all across the world studying your faults? Because the reality is this. Be sure your sins will find you out. And if I wait and push against the conviction of God and I don't listen to the grace of God, they will be discovered, but there will be shame. The man who has hidden his pornography for years suddenly comes to light and his whole family is embarrassed. The person who's been secretly addicted to some substance and has never come clean, loses the job, impacts the family and the kids, and everyone is impacted. You see, there can be the pushing against it. Or the third thing, the confession of past sin. Here's the answer. David could have said to Nathan, how dare you come into my palace? How dare you accuse me of this? I'm the most powerful man in the world. Off with your head. He will be silent forever. He could have done that. He had the power to do it. But his misery would have only been deeper. And he knew it. So what do we see? 
We see a confession. David says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David confesses. I want to tell you, the answer for destructive guilt is honest confession. I want you to notice three things David did here in his confession. Number one, David owns his sin. He owns it. He calls it his three times in verse 5. He uses a personal pronoun that reflects it back to him. He says, I acknowledged my sin. Then he said, I did not cover my iniquity. And I confess my transgressions. They're his sins. It's not Bathsheba's sin. It's not Uriah's sin. It's not Joab's sin. It's not the sin of the culture. It's his sin. And whenever you and I do not own our personal sin, we will never be free from the guilt that the enemy wants to use to enslave us. It's your sin. I can't tell you how many times I've had couples come into my office And the man wants to blame his wife for his immorality. Well, she just hasn't taken care of my needs. And I told one man, don't you ever blame your wife's integrity for your immorality. It's your sin. When you look in the mirror, you did this. We must own it. It is mine. Here's the second thing David does. He observes the serious nature of his sin. Notice how he puts it. The same verse, different words. I acknowledge my sin. That's missing the mark of God. I did not cover my iniquity. That's perverse, sinful behavior. He says, I confess my transgressions. That is a willful disobedience to a known path that should be followed. So what did he do? He recognized that what he did was sinful. It was perverse. He had an adulterous affair with another man's wife, and when it couldn't be found out, he had that man murdered. It was perverse. He broke three of the Ten Commandments and much more. He called it what it is. We're living in a culture today that nobody wants to call sin, sin. David could have said, oh, it was just a lapse of judgment. Please forgive me. He could have said, oh, look, you know, I'm just going through the midlife crisis thing. Every man goes through this. He could have said, oh, you know what? This is a perfectly acceptable thing in our culture today. But he didn't. He called it what it is. And I want to tell you, when you and I remove the vocabulary and the word sin, iniquity, transgressions, and evil, we leave open a door for destructive guilt to remain. Sin. Here's the third thing. He directs his offense to God. Ultimately, all sin offends God. He directs that to God. Notice how he puts it. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Not to Nathan, to God. I acknowledge my sin is to you. Before anyone else, ultimately, my sin has offended a holy God. 
When Nathan confronted him in chapter 12, verse 12, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, ultimately, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against the people by deceiving them. But his sin, number one, was before God. And why is that so important? Listen, if I offend you, and I hurt you, and I ask you to forgive me, you can forgive me for my offense to you, but you cannot forgive me for my offense to God. Only He can do that. And when I sit down with people, when we deal with issues of sin and repentance, the very first thing I direct them to is their offense to a holy God and ask for His forgiveness, and then the rest follows in line. But it's always an offense to God. When we confess, own it. When we confess, call it what it is. When we confess, recognize our sin, number one, is before a holy God. Now comes the good part. The cleansing. The cleansing of destructive guilt. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David looks back on it now and he says, God forgave me the iniquity of my sin. I confessed it. I owned it. I, oh, I, I've offended God. I've asked for forgiveness. I've repented. And you cleansed me. How do we know that he was cleansed? We see in chapter 12 of verse 13 of 2 Samuel. Nathan says to him, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. That child is going to die. But you won't die. God's put away your sin. And even though that child dies, God's grace rested on David. David and Bathsheba had another son. His name was Solomon. And all three of them are in the genealogy of Jesus because there was cleansing. There's cleansing. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brother, sister, the, the answer is confession. If we confess our sin, this is a conditional clause, if... If you confess your sin, specific sins, not just general sins. This is not, oh God, forgive me of my sins. No, this is, Father, forgive me of that lust in my heart. Father, forgive me of the pride that's within me. Father, forgive me of the way that I lied about that situation. Father, forgive me of the unforgiveness in my specific sin. If you confess that sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Listen carefully. This is another one of those sentences. God is more eager to forgive us of our sins than we often are to confess them. He's more eager to forgive than we are to confess. And when we confess, what happens? Three things. Sin is removed. God removes it. It's covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the Father is restored. Sin breaks fellowship with God. And when I confess that, that fellowship is restored. And joy 
is renewed. It comes back. Some of you this morning, believers, you have been hiding sin in your life for a long time. Nobody knows about it except you, maybe a few people, and Almighty God. And yet there's been a cloud of guilt that has followed you for years. There's that toothache in your soul. And God is saying to you today, the devil will use that to enslave you and rob you of all your joy. Confess it. Own it. Repent. And embrace the grace that I have for you. And walk in that. You're in a prison cell and the door is open. You have all authority to walk out because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. He's acquitted you of every sin. You have his grace and you have freedom and you have forgiveness. Receive it. Confess it. It's yours. Some of you have done that. You have asked for forgiveness. You have confessed sin of the past. You have named it. You have repented of it, but you're still walking in false guilt. God has already acquitted you of that sin. But you've traded grace for guilt. And the enemy knows that. And the Father knows that. One of the greatest verses in the book of Romans, in chapter 8... Beginning in verse 1 is one of the most significant passages for any believer. And here's what Paul writes. Do you have that? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And if you've been acquitted of your sin... The Lord Jesus does not condemn you. Why do you condemn yourself? And why do you allow the enemy to condemn you? You're free. The prison door is open. Embrace the grace of God and walk out in that grace. Never to held accountable to that sin. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, there's really nothing you can do with this message except one thing. And that is to surrender your life to Jesus. And here's why. Your greatest need is your forgiveness for offending a holy God. You can go ask everybody else in your life of how you've offended them, would they forgive you, and that might be fine and sweet. But when you die, your guilt is still on you. But God has provided a remedy for that. In His Son, Jesus, when He died on that cross... He died for you. He took the penalty of your sin so you can walk in his grace. And he is calling you today to surrender to him. And in that surrender, your sins are forgiven. And you are free. See, the enemy wants to use this destructive guilt. God wants to deliver us from this guilt. And too many of us live our lives in regret avenue. 
regretting the past but never doing anything about it. But coming to the Lord and being open and honest and confessing is freedom. That's freedom. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to ask you to remain seated. I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, the band is going to come on the platform. And they're going to sing a song that actually our team wrote. And this is, a, this is one of our originals. But I want you to listen to it. As we listen to the words of the freedom that we have in Christ. And while this song is playing, if there's some confession of sin, take this time, do it. If there's false guilt, settle this issue. If you're without Christ, surrender to him even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that even though the enemy wants to enslave us in guilt, destructive guilt, you want to free us. And that freedom is ours in Christ. Father, may we put away those things. May we confess them. And Father, may this be a lesson for any other sins in the future, any other failures, that immediately we own it. Immediately we confess it. Immediately we call it what it is. And Father, we immediately get up from that failure and we walk in freedom, never to be enslaved by the enemy. Father, may we not walk down regret avenues but Father, may we walk in the glorious roads of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name.